Acts chapter 6, verse 8, page 1098 in the Church Bible. Now Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power, performed great wonders and signs among the people. Opposition arose, however, from members of the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, Jews of Cyrene and Alexandria, as well as the provinces of, of Sicilia and Asia, who began to argue with Stephen, but they could not stand up against the wisdom the Spirit gave him as he spoke. And then Stephen delivers that very famous sermon in spite of and in the front of considerable opposition. And then turning over to Acts chapter 7 verse 51 and then reading to the end of the chapter. You stiff-necked people, he said, your hearts and ears are still uncircumcised. You are just like your ancestors. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet your ancestors did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one. And now you have betrayed and murdered him. You who have received the law that was given through angels but have not obeyed it. When the members of the Sanhedrin heard this, they were furious and gnashed their teeth at him. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. At this they covered their ears and yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed at him, dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. Meanwhile the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. When he had said this, he fell asleep. And Saul approved of their killing him. May God bless to us that reading and be with our brother Sam as he comes to preach to us. keep talking. Uh, let me pray for us uh, briefly and then we will get stuck into the three questions. Father, thank you for your word and we just ask tonight that your spirit would take this word and would apply it to our lives and through it we would see your good commands, the way you want us to live our lives and most of all, Father, that we would see more of your son, the Lord Jesus and how glorious he is. We pray this in his name. Amen. Uh, let me ask you a question. What is the biggest problem that the church in 2019 faces. When we were on holiday in, in Scotland um, a couple of weeks ago, I went to a museum about the Russian Arctic convoys. Um, I find that kind of thing quite interesting. I've done quite a lot of reading on it. Uh, Becky doesn't. She stayed outside with a coffee, so maybe you fall into that camp. Um, but I think it's interesting, partly because my grandfather served on the convoys um, and partly because of what they went through. If you read it, it's astounding, the descriptions of what they went through. These were convoys that sailed from Scapa Flow, uh, which is uh, on islands off the north of Scotland, and they sailed to Russia during World War II, carrying tanks and planes and fuel, things to aid the Soviets in their war efforts. 
And they faced incredible danger and hardship. They faced German U-boats, they faced German ships, they faced bombers from Norway, and of course they faced the weather. They were battling through to get to Russia. This, this, this group, this team, facing all these external threats. What is the biggest problem that we face as the church here, as the church in the UK, as the church in the West, as the church in the world? What is the biggest problem? Because sometimes it can feel like we're really up against it, facing opposition from all quarters. Sometimes it's very specific things. Sometimes it's just the general uh, slide further and further away from Christian thinking and morality. We feel like we are sailing through very treacherous seas. But here's what a man called Francis Schaeffer said. Francis Schaeffer was a famous apologist and Christian thinker who lived in the 20th century. And someone asked him that question. And he said, the central problem of our age is not liberalism or modernism or the threat of communism or the threat of rationalism or monolithic consensus which surround us, nor postmodernism or consumerism or any other isms. And we could add lots of things that people have an agenda on and, and even heresy and all these different things. Schaefer said this, the real problem is this, the church of the Lord Jesus Christ individually and corporately tending to do the Lord's work in the power of the flesh rather than that of the Spirit. The central problem is always in the midst of the people of God, not in the circumstances surrounding them. And tonight we're continuing this series on the Holy Spirit, and Matt suggested that we look at three phrases uh, that occur in the New Testament that Christians sometimes find confusing but are really important for us to understand. Uh, What does it mean to resist the Spirit? What does it mean to quench the Spirit? And what does it mean to grieve the Spirit? Those are the three questions we're going to look at. All of those things involve treating the Spirit in a negative way. And if Francis Schaeffer is right, that the biggest need as a church and as individuals that we have is to walk in the power of the Spirit, to have the Spirit working through us, then it's going to be really helpful tonight, isn't it, to work out what does it mean to be on the right side of those phrases. And the only way we can do that is by looking at the passages where those phrases appear. So that's why we're going to have three different Bible readings tonight. Uh, You need to get strapped in. We're going to be moving around. Uh, And this isn't three separate talks, because I think as we go through this, we will see that actually there's a lot of overlapping themes. And let me give you a heads up as we start. This is where I think some of this is going. We resist and quench and grieve the Spirit when we limit or reject the things that He cares about. Let me say that again. We resist, quench, and grieve the Spirit when we limit or reject the things that he cares about. So let's start off with, uh, what does it mean to resist the Spirit? And you might have seen that phrase come up in Acts chapter 6 and 7. Uh, What is the scene? The scene is that Stephen is on trial. And he's on trial for speaking about Jesus and going around proclaiming Jesus to be the Christ. But his defense is actually a defense of Jesus. And God's plan fulfilled perfectly in Jesus. It's incredible to read Stephen's words. As Andrew noted, this is a man facing death, and yet he is so calm. He is so clear. And the answer, I think, for that is in chapter 6, verse 10, where it says, They could not stand up against the wisdom the Spirit gave him as he spoke. Chapter 7, verse 55 says he was full of the Holy Spirit. And presumably, everything that comes in between those verses is said through the power and the work of the Spirit through Stephen. I wonder if you've had that experience of talking to someone who's maybe not a Christian and feeling under pressure. 
I've had that, where they're asking really tough questions or they're asking about you or they're asking, you know, why do you believe this or surely this doesn't make sense or what about this contentious issue? And the blood starts to flow into your face. You start to feel really hot under the collar. What a great thing to stop at that moment and just to pray in your head for the Spirit's help that you'd be able to speak clearly and boldly just like Stephen. And what is it that Stephen says? Uh, We didn't have time to read it. We're just going to skim it now. But he covers a lot of things, doesn't he? If you look down with me, um, Abraham and the promises that God gave him and Joseph and Moses and the Ten Commandments, David, Solomon. And then it climaxes in verse 52 with him talking about Jesus, who he calls the righteous one. And the themes of what Stephen is saying is that God's plan culminates in Jesus. The Jesus who is proclaimed by God's words and then rejected by those people who reject God's word. And so Stephen turns to the Jewish religious authorities in verse 52 and says this, they even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one. And now you have betrayed and murdered him, you who have received the law that was given through angels but have not obeyed it. Stephen says, you're doing exactly the same thing as all those uh, people, all your predecessors in the Old Testament. You should know God's word, and yet you are rejecting God's word. And you should welcome Jesus, God's Messiah, and yet you are rejecting God's Messiah. You killed him. So what does it mean to resist the spirit? That phrase comes in verse 51. Stephen says, you are like your ancestors. You always resist the spirit. And with all of these phrases tonight, they are not phrases that the writers drop in. They're not things that just stand alone, where we can read them and just go, I wonder what that means. I think it probably means this. We need to look at it in context. And the context is, is all that Stephen has said in his kind of Bible overview, but also verses 52 and 53. Resisting the Spirit means resisting God's word and God's chosen king. God's word revealed through the prophets, God's word revealed through the law, God's word that points to King Jesus. Stephen is saying, the Spirit inspired that word. This is the Spirit's word. He inspired all those commands. He inspired the prophets he pointed to Jesus coming. The Spirit, what does he do? He shines a spotlight on the Son, on God's chosen King, on Jesus. And the Spirit shines a spotlight on our sin, Through looking at God's good commands, we know that we are sinners and we know that we need a saviour and so we're back to Jesus again. As uh, J.R. Packer put it in his famous book on keeping in step with the Spirit, he said the Spirit's message to us is never look at me, the Spirit, listen to me, come to me, get to know me, but always look at Jesus, look at him, see his glory, listen to him, hear his word, go to him and have life, get to know him, taste his gift of joy and peace. By resisting God's word and God's king, you are resisting the Spirit, because those are the things that the Spirit cares about. It's always God's plan that we would submit to Jesus as king. He's like a good king arriving at a city, and and he takes over the city, but he has really good commands and and just this amazing plan for the people who are going to live there, who've been under an evil dictator's power. And yet some people still fight back. And that is what these people are doing here. People who have heard God's word, They're the religious people. They should know all of this. They should accept it, and yet they resist it. The passage describes Stephen on trial before the religious authorities, but have you seen the flip? By the end of it, they're on trial. 
They're on trial for rejecting God's word and God's king, and they are guilty of resisting the spirit. And let me say in the kindest possible terms that if you are here tonight and you're someone who's heard the Bible's teaching, you've heard the good news of Jesus, and you are still saying no, then you are resisting the Spirit. I was thinking earlier this week about a youth group that I used to help lead in my old church. And some of the youth we've seen at places like Word Alive in Keswick um, four or five years later, and, and they're still going for it. They're loving Jesus. They're trying to live for Jesus. But I was thinking of this boy, Scott. Uh, he's not a boy anymore. He's about 23, 24. And he was someone who was brought up in a Christian home. Godly parents went through Sunday children's groups, holiday clubs, youth camps, went through everything. And he heard so much about Jesus from God's word. And then he got to 18 and he said, no. No, I don't believe it. I don't want to believe it. I want to live my own life. And I was praying for him earlier this week because as far as I know, he is still resisting the spirit. And that is an incredibly dangerous, fatal place to be in. When we reject God's word, all those things that point to God's chosen king, Jesus, we are resisting the Spirit. Our second question, what does it mean to quench the Spirit? Uh, we find this in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. So Graham's going to come up and read 1 Thessalonians 5 for us. Do you turn to it so you can check what I'm saying, check whether you agree with it or not. Thank you. So 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 15 through to verses 24. And it's on page 1188 of the Blue Church Bibles. Make sure that nobody pays back wrong for wrong, but always strive to do what is good for each other and for everyone else. Rejoice always, pray continually, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Do not quench the spirit. Do not treat prophecies with contempt, but test them all. Hold on to what is good, reject every kind of evil. May God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit, soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. The one who calls you is faithful and he will do it. Great, thanks, Graham. I appreciate that. Uh, what does it mean to quench the Spirit? Again, context is crucial. So what is going on in this passage? Um, Paul is giving those one, one of those lists yeah, where he gives various commands. Uh, it shows us what does it mean to live as a Christian day to day. What does it mean to live a Christ-centered, cross-centered life? And do not quench the Spirit. It comes bang in the middle of that list. So Paul says, do what is good. Don't seek revenge. Pray. Be thankful. And then we get to verse 19. So the context around it is about Christians being commanded to make godly decisions to live in a godly way, to battle to follow Jesus. And it is a battle, isn't it? Uh, where we can pray or not bother praying. We can forgive and treat people with love or not bother forgiving. What does God's word say? It says pray. Be like Jesus. Jesus prayed. What does God's word say? It says forgive. But there are many other voices in our heads, aren't there, telling us, actually, let's not bother. 
And every time we decide to not even battle for it, we are making a decision to fall on the opposite side from God and his good commands in his word. We're effectively going back to Eden, aren't we? And we're replaying what Adam and Eve did. They hear God's word and they decide to reject it. Verse 20 um, is a really uh, helpful verse in helping us to understand verse 19. Uh, Look down at verse 20. It says, Do not treat prophecies with contempt, but test them all. Hold on to what is good. Reject every kind of evil. When we did the series on 1 Corinthians, uh, we talked a little bit about prophecy then, and we thought about prophecy is, is connected with the proclamation of God's word. It's God's word being held out to another Christian as we look to gospel each other as brothers and sisters in Christ. Uh, maybe it's the spirit as well giving something particular to speak from God's word into a particular situation. And Paul says, don't treat prophecies with contempt. Maybe the Ephesians were doing that. And so Paul says, no, because God's word and things rooted in God's word is really important. Listen to people as they are speaking to you. Make sure that what the things they are saying is in accordance with God's word. But if you look at it and you just go, actually, that is bang in line with what God says. It's coming out of God's words. Respond to it. Then at the end of this little passage, Paul asks that God would sanctify them and that they would be blameless. How are we sanctified? By God's word being applied to our lives through the work of the Spirit. So what does it then mean, verse 19, to quench the Spirit? What does it mean to even quench something? Uh, We had a hub group social a few weeks ago. Uh, It was in someone's garden, and we had a fire pit. And um, there's a couple of things you can do with a fire pit that can make a a massive difference to it. Uh, One of them is to chuck more fuel on. Okay, So you get some logs that you bought or some things you cut down in the garden, or if you're really lazy like me, you get some cardboards um, and you throw the cardboard on. And my little tip is take the Amazon labels off the cardboard, okay? Because my theory is that, that um, fire pits have this kind of morality where they're against big um, multi-billion pound corporations because the smell is uh, not very nice when it burns Amazon labels. So, so rip that off, but you can chuck the cardboard boxes on. And as a general principle, you throw the fuel on, the flames get hotter, or you can do something completely different. And we did this at the end of the night, where you can pour water on the flames. And gradually, the flames will get smaller and smaller, and the heat will get less and less, and the fire less and less effective. And that is quenching the fire. That is what Paul means here. It's interesting, isn't it? The fire is one of the pictures that is often used of God in the Bible. And isn't it an incredible statement? Think about what it is saying. It is saying that the Holy Spirit is the third person of the triune God, God who is called an all-consuming fire, and yet we have in our ability as Christians the capacity to quench him in our lives. God gives us the freedom, in some sense, to do that. If you're a Christian here tonight, you have the Spirit living in you. We're going to learn about that next week, but you you have the Spirit living in you. That will never change. But you can quench the Spirit, the work of the Spirit, the power of the Spirit in your life. Uh, how do we do that? I think it's worth saying now that I've, um, I've read quite a lot about this, um, some different writers, different blogs on the internet, different preachers, and amongst Bible-believing Christians, there are lots of different uh, interpretations and applications of what this means. Uh, let me just say some of them. Um, uh, some people, um, one person said, we quench the Holy Spirit when we rely decisively on any resource other than the Holy Spirit for anything we do in life and ministry. Uh, we quench the Spirit when we diminish him personally and speak of him as if he were only an abstract power or source of divine energy. 
We quench the spirit when we suppress or legislate against his work of imparting spiritual gifts and ministering to the church through them. We quench the spirit when we quench his, uh, his pointing to us as being sons and daughters of God. Uh, someone said we quench the, the spirit when we are too tied to tradition. And I think all of those things are true to, to a greater or lesser extent. I think they're all really important. Um, but I think maybe there's a simpler overarching answer that is connected to the context of 1 Thessalonians 5, which is where the phrase comes from. Uh, so here's my attempt. Tell me what you think afterwards. We quench the Spirit's work in our lives when we disregard what God's Word says. We don't respond to it, and by doing that, we are not submitting to Jesus' kingship. So maybe we don't even care about finding out what God's Word says, or we do know what God's Word says, but we decide to do something different. When we reject God's word and when we limit God's word when it is held out to us and it is, and it is accurate, is in line with God's word, um, like in verse 20, when we see what the Spirit is showing us about our sin and our Savior and we don't care about it and we don't respond to it. All of those things, we are quenching the Spirit. Here's what one writer said. He summarized it as this. The Spirit is quenched by any unyieldedness to the revealed will of God. You see, the Spirit doesn't work independently of God's word. It's not as if God, before the creation of the world, um, was there having a strategy meeting. Yeah, have you sat in a strategy planning meeting? And he sat there, and the Father says, what is our strategy for how we're going to change lives and achieve all these purposes? I think maybe we should send out the word. Let's send out our word and that'll work for some people, but let's also send out the Spirit, and that'll work for different people. And every now and again, those two things will, will, will clash, um, and we'll just, they'll just have a fight and they'll work out what, which one is more appropriate in each situation. That is ridiculous. That is ridiculous, isn't it? The Spirit takes the Word and applies it to our lives. And when we play them off against each other, when we go, you've got the Word over here, and then you've got the Spirit over here, and we play them off against each other, we're, we're doing our next point. We are grieving the Spirit. Ephesians 6 uh, describes the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. So the Spirit, for example, loves um, what Derek's doing. He loves that you're translating God's Word so that more and more people can hear God's Word. The Spirit loves that. What is quenching the Spirit? It's not submitting to God's Word. That is why there's a link with verse 20. And that happens all the time in my life. It happens every couple of minutes where I have a choice of whether I do go Jesus' way or whether I go my own way. But I wonder whether Paul isn't thinking so much about that. He's thinking more about um, bigger things where we have an opportunity to stop and think and read our Bibles and sit under preaching at church Maybe linking with verse 20, with, with prophecy, we have received challenge and encouragement from other Christians through preaching or through people talking to us informally. They're holding out God's word with us, maybe with a specific application for us, but we consciously decide to go against it. And by doing that, we are going against the Holy Spirit's leading in our lives. And Paul says, if you're doing that, you're quenching the Spirit. So don't then turn around and ask for more of the Spirit in your life. It may be a, a secret sin. Um, Trev talked about something like that this morning. Something that no one else here knows that you do. But you do. You do it on a regular basis. You know it is against God's words. But you keep doing it. And you're quenching the spirit in your life. Maybe it's, it's, it's an idol. 
an idol that you've been convicted of so many times. You sat in sermons or on a life group Bible study, you come away from it, maybe someone said something to you and you felt, oh, actually that thing's an idol in my life, that, that job or that relationship or, or money, that's, you know. But it's still there. You haven't smashed that idol. You're quenching the spirits. Maybe forgiveness, linked with verse 15. You, you've got something against someone, maybe someone in this room. For the last couple of years, you've been really angry with them. Maybe someone in your family, you've been really angry with them, and you know you should forgive them, but you're not going to do it. Every time you feel challenged about it, think, no, I'm not going to do it. You're quenching the spirit. Maybe it's not praying, maybe it's not being thankful to God. It comes from pride, doesn't it? Let me ask you, do you want more of the Spirit's power and work in your life? If you're a Christian here tonight, you will definitely be thinking, yes. I want more of the Spirit's power and work in my life. But I think it is perfectly possible, and I'm speaking from experience here, to want more of the Spirit's work and move in your life and to consciously disobey God persistently in another part of your life. You're limiting and rejecting the things that the Spirit cares about because he cares about us submitting to Jesus, being more like Jesus. And what are we doing? We are getting a big, big, jug of water, and we are dousing the fire. We're quenching the flame. And if that is true of you, true of me, we need to repent, don't we? Come to the cross of Christ in repentance, knowing that there is forgiveness for sins. Uh, What does it mean to grieve the Spirit? Our third point, what does it mean to grieve the Spirit? Um, We're going to see familiar things again here tonight uh, in in, in this section, things we've already covered. It's found in Ephesians chapter 4. Frame it up again. Lovely. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 20 to 32, on page 1175 of the Blue Bibles. So from verse 20. That, however, is not the way of life you learned when you heard about Christ and were taught in him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds and to put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbour, for we are all members of one body. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry. And do not give the devil a foothold. Anyone who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work doing something useful with their own hands, that they may have something to share with those in need. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness, rage and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God God forgave you. Brilliant. Thanks again. Brian, uh, do you have that passage open? And uh, did you see, there's another one of those lists. 
And Paul describes what it means to, to live the Christian life. He contrasts the, the, the Christian life as the new life compared to the old life. Uh, verse 25, be truthful. Verse 26, don't be sinfully angry. Verse 28, don't steal. Uh, work hard. Verse 29, use constructive, not destructive words. Verse 31, no more bitterness or rage or slander. Verse 32, be compassionate and forgiving. And again, our phrase about the Spirit comes right in the middle of those, doesn't it? It, becomes, it comes in verse 30. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Grieving is a, a word that reminds us that the Spirit is a person. He's not just a force. He's a person. He can experience sorrow and sadness at our disobedience. He's hurt by our deliberate rebellion against King Jesus and against God's commands. Uh, there's a link at the end of verse 30 with Jesus coming back, isn't there, about the day of redemption uh, and about being taken to the new creation. It's what someone called uh, Ryan Lister says in his book on the presence of God. He says, Paul understands that sanctification is a preparatory act. It is a progressive work that continues in redemptive history for a future result. In other words, the Spirit works to prepare us in holiness so that we can stand in the presence of God now and when Christ returns in glory to usher in his kingdom. We must be holy like God, and this is what the Spirit does for us. He works to make us into the likeness of our Messiah, Jesus, so that we may be with the Messiah forever. So what is his passion, the Spirit's passion? It's interesting, isn't it, when you see those... um, uh, I, I don't know if you've ever been involved in recruitment, uh, interviewing people for jobs, and you see people's application forms and, um, and CVs, and there's always a section, isn't there, about hobbies, interests, passions, um, uh, and uh, some people put down some quite interesting ones. Uh, so one person that I saw put down that they had a passion for cooking, dogs, and watching films, but they forgot to put the comma after cooking. Think about it. Um, Another person meant to say that they had a passion for martial arts, but actually wrote marital arts. Whatever those are. Uh, one person wrote, my passion is donating bloods. I've donated, donated 12 litres so far. Um, and one person wrote, I have a passion for time travel. Shit, you've got to wonder when they wrote that. Um, what, are the, thanks, what are the Spirit's passions? They are the most perfect passions anyone can have. He has a passion for people seeing Jesus in all his glory. He has a passion for people becoming like Jesus as they submit to God's word. If he was applying, if he had a CV, if we saw it tonight, that is what he would say. Those are his passions. So how do we grieve the spirit? By not following God's God's good commands in God's good word, the following of which will make us more like Christ. So if you're going to lie, verse 25, you're going to be grieving the spirit. If you steal, verse 28, you're going to be grieving the spirit. We don't forgive, verse 32, we grieve the Spirit. The Spirit's role is to convict us of sin and to shine a spotlight on Christ. It says that in John 16 and to show us the truth of God's word, 1 Corinthians 2. When we decide to ignore those things or reject those things, we are grieving him because he really, really cares about them. That's why he's grieved. Let's try and unpack this and, and some of the other things we've been, uh, seen tonight with, with just a few examples. Um, here's the first example. I read an interview yesterday with um, someone who's a prominent Christian um, and uh, they've adopted a lifestyle and approach to sexuality that the Bible says is wrong. 
And I was reading this interview, and, and what comes across is the part of their justification for it is that they felt that God was fine with it. God was leading them to do this. God's spirit was supporting them on this journey. It's very sad, isn't it? And don't you think that that grieves the spirit? Not only because they are going against what the Bible says about sexuality, the right context for sex, but also because they're using the spirit to justify that decision. They're saying, well, I think the spirit is leading me in this way. The spirit can't be leading them in that way because the spirit can't contradict what is already in God's word. I think that grieves the spirit, seeing that article, seeing that interview. I think here's something else that grieves the spirit. Anytime anyone or any church wants to take the focus off the Lord Jesus. So I remember going on a school trip a few years ago, um, uh, and there were about 100 teenagers on it. We went to a cathedral. 100 teenagers in a cathedral for two hours. And we learned so much history. We were given a tour by one of the cathedral guides who is kind of employed by the cathedral to do this every single day. And in those two hours, there was no mention of Jesus. 100 teenagers for two hours, no mention of Jesus. And don't you think the Spirit looks at that and is grieved by that? Because he wants to shine the spotlight on Jesus. He wants to say, Jesus is incredible. But this person, maybe this cathedral, is saying, do you know what? No, let's not bother. Maybe there's a cross on the wall, but Jesus isn't really something we're focused on. And here's one positive example. I was reading a couple of days ago. Um, I sent this to um, the, bo- the band leader's WhatsApp group um, for, for this church. Uh, it was a, an article by a church musician, and he was trying to take quenching the spirit and grieving the spirit and apply it to, to people like Reese who'd been leading up the front. And one of the things he said was this. He said, band leaders need to ask the Holy Spirit to shine a light on our sin. He says, John 16 verse 8 says, The Spirit will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness. If we step on stage to lead sung worship and we have unconfessed sin in our hearts, we grieve the Holy Spirit. He's taking it as a practical thing. And so what does he do? He gets his band together before they go on stage and they just have a time of confession and prayer before they go on to lead people in God's praise. You see, the Spirit's longing for us is to look to Jesus, the Jesus proclaimed and revealed in God's word, and to obey the good commands of Jesus. He wants us to see the sin in our hearts tonight and to go, do you know what? I'm going to fight to follow God's good word. I want to turn from sin, and I want to turn to Jesus because I know that his way is the right way and the best way and the only way, and he is glorious. The Spirit would love that because that's his passion. And not doing that grieves him. And any time we then go, no, no. I'm a Christian, I'm going to live as a Christian, but in that area of my life, in that thing, no. What are we doing? We're resisting the Spirit. We're quenching the Spirit. We're grieving the Spirit. As we finish, let me, um, let me tell you about... Uh, couple of things I've been reading. Um, Over the summer, I've been reading a book about revival by a guy called uh, Ray Ortland, you might have heard of. Um, And it's really interesting as you work through this book that uh, the teaching in the Bible, and also from history, is the repentance and humbling ourselves before God, turning back to him, go hand in hand with the Spirit moving powerfully in our lives. Let me read you a description, just as we finish, of the 1907 Korean Revival. The 1907 Korean Revival had a massive impact, 
and it's still having an impact. So it's one of those revivals that actually, 50 years later, you can still see the impact. It's not a flash in the pan thing that is gone in six months. It says this, they started the year, the Christians, with Bible study and prayer meetings every single night. So they sat under God's words and they came to him in prayer. On the 12th night of the 1907 Bible study class in Pyongyang, those that gathered in the church described a sense of God's nearness, impossible of description. After a short sermon, one of the Korean church leaders led everyone in attendance in prayer. This prayer was indescribable, not confusion, but a vast harmony of sound and spirit, a mingling together of souls moved by an irresistible impulse of prayer, an ocean of prayer beating against God's throne. The gathering was even more intense the following night. Concerned about the intensity of the meeting, the missionaries gathered together as soon as they could to discuss the situation. In the end, the consensus was that they had pleaded with God for an outpouring of the Spirit, and he had answered, so they dared not interfere. Then the unthinkable happened. Before a meeting, the like of which I'd never seen before, the person writes, nor wished to see again unless in God's sight it is absolutely necessary, every sin a human being can commit was publicly confessed. We may have our theories about the desirability or undesirability of public confession of sin, but I now know that when the Spirit of God falls upon guilty souls, there will be confession, and now no power on earth can stop it. The next day, the men in attendance returned to their churches, where the revival spread throughout the whole Korean peninsula. Similar instances of confession of sin, weeping and praying occurred spontaneously throughout the land. Even schools had to close down for days as children wept together over their sins. And that was the start of a revival where that whole country was pointed to the Lord Jesus. Affected millions of people, still has an impact today. And all I've been thinking about this week while preparing this is that I want more of the Spirit's fire and power and work in my life. I want to be more like Jesus. I want to be a better servant of my King. I don't want to resist the Spirit. I don't want to quench the Spirit. I don't want to grieve the Spirit. I don't want to say in this part of my life, no. I'm sure you don't either. For all of that, we need God's help, don't we? We need God's help. So why don't we pray and uh, ask for God's help in that.